Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 69. Follow the money. Welcome to episode 69 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this time around, I thought I'd, well, be a little topical. Uh, The day of this episode's release, which will be November 8th, 2016, people throughout the United States will be going to the polls to vote in the 2016 presidential election. This election season has been, well, interesting is too vague of a word. Volatile is perhaps the most polite way to put it. Uh, In the very least, it's just about over. I think a number of us, no matter what our political affiliation are, if not happy, then at least relieved that it's all over. Because now we can go back to arguing about movies uh, with one another instead of politics. But before our election season is officially declared over when the polls finally close across the country tonight, I wanted to take a look at them at a movie that, while it has nothing to do with the current election or either of the current presidential candidates, is one of the all-time great political thrillers, and that is the 1976 film All the President's Men. Base one to unit one. Hold it, you mother! Hold it! Police! There's been a break in at Democratic headquarters. And they were bugging the place. Woodward. Bernstein, you're both on the story now. Don't get up. Redford. I'm Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. Mr. Markham, are you here in connection with the Watergate burglary? I'm not here. Hoffman. Hi, uh, this is Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post, and I was just wondering if you can remember... The President's Men, the story of the two young reporters who cracked the Watergate conspiracy. White House. Howard Hunt, please. He might be in Mr. Colson's office. Who's Charles Colson? Did you know uh, Howard Hunt? Well, the White House said he was doing some investigative work. What do you say? 
they stumbled into Leeds. Certainly it comes as no surprise to you that Howard was with the CIA. No, no surprise at all. They tripped over clues. We'd like to see all the material requested by the White House. All White House transactions are confidential. This whole thing is a cover-up. It's right on our nose. And piece by piece, they solve the greatest detective story in American history. There is no way the White House can control the investigation. I, I don't want to say anymore, okay? Have you been threatened if you tell the truth? Is there a cover-up? Don't you understand what you're on to? Mitchell knew? Of course, Mitchell knew. Woodward! Bernstein! Get in here! At times, it looked as if it might cost them their jobs. You guys are about to write a story that says the former attorney general, the highest-ranking law enforcement officer in this country, is a crook. Their reputations. Why is the Post trying to do it? I don't know. Perhaps even their lives. Uh, to take a look at the film is a guy who has a number of podcasts and was on this show a long, long time ago to talk about his book, Hey Kids Comics. He is the host of the Film and Water podcast, as well as Pod Dylan, and one half of the Fire and Water team, the other half being Shag, which makes him the most patient man in podcasting. <laughs> Please welcome Rob Kelly to the show. <laughs> That's my favorite intro I've ever gotten, and the most accurate. How are you doing, Rob? I'm doing quite well, fam. I'm, I'm glad to be back on the show. I forgot that I was on this show to talk about Hey Kids. That was a long time ago, so yeah. wow. Yeah. Uh, I think it was like one of my – it was in like one of the first five or six episodes of the show. I, I was, it had to have been. Yeah. That was like 2011 when yeah. it was published. So. Yeah. Wow. So. Wow. Um, yeah, so, so, uh, this movie came out in 76. I know both of us, uh, well, I actually, believe it or not, was not alive yet. Um, I'm, I'm just barely post Star Wars. Okay. I was born on June 23rd, 1977. So I am, wow. I am, I'm younger than Star Wars by almost a month. You were technically around when Star Wars came out. You yeah. were not independent person. Yes. <laughs> I was on my I was on my way. I had one foot out the door. <laughs> no, actually I didn't. Not yet. But anyway, um uh I know you're but you're not that much I don't think you're that much older than me. Uh if you were you were born in 77, I was born in yeah. 71, so I'm okay. years old. So I was in fact alive during uh, the, the this movie's release and the whole Michigas with Richard Nixon. Of course I was too young to be aware of any of it, but but I was I was I was born during the Nixon administration. Yeah, okay. Yeah, cuz I, I was thinking about that like um uh just in in terms of like what my memories are because I was I was talking politics with somebody and I was born during the Carter administration, but aside from a vague memory of seeing Carter on television, I the first president I remember is uh, Reagan. Sure, sure. So, um, but uh, so so this is this isn't a movie I don't think that either of one of us would have seen it, uh, upon its initial release, unless your no. parents were taking you to the movies to see it when you were five years old. <laughs> um, so, and I know you're a, you and I are both pretty big movie fans. Uh, both of us have both of us I've, I've seen as I've, I've listened to Film and Water are fans of movies from the seventies. How did you first encounter this movie? What's your 
to use the cliche now in podcasting, what's your origin story with all the presents, Ben? Um, by the way, I've been enjoying the origin story episodes of. Oh, thank uh, you. Doing. Thank you. Um, no, the, I saw this first when I, I in uh, right after art school, I worked at a video store. I've mentioned that on Film and Water and Fire and Water here and there. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the store that I worked at was um, it wasn't like a blockbuster that had you know a thousand copy of thousand copies of four movies we had everything like we prided ourselves in being like a real movie you know like a real film fans video store so i kind of sent myself to film school because uh, all the rentals were free so and i was you know living at home and i was single and i had you know and so i i just was like watching three or four movies a night you know, like hmm. you, you do when you're in your 20s, you're not sleeping yeah. and you're up all the time or whatever. You sleep until 10 or whatever. So I just saw everything. I, I completely dropped any pretense of like what I might think I like. And I just grabbed everything. I've watched foreign films. I watched silent films. I watched everything. And so this was one of those movies that I had always heard was a classic. I certainly was familiar with Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. I've always been interested in presidential politics at a probably unusually young age. And so this this was, you know, and I'd heard that it was a, it was a, a classic. Um, and so it was just, you know, there's one of those movies. I'm like, oh, here's my chance to finally watch this movie. And I watched it and I thought it was a, a masterpiece. And it's one of those movies that despite that, the fact that it's fairly dry, it's really just a bunch of people in in, in you know, rooms writing stuff down yeah yeah it's so scintillating and i never get tired of it i have um i i have uh, certain films on audio that i listen to at work like when i can go Mm -hmm. for long stretches where i don't have to be listening to anything and this is one of the movies i have and i I probably listen to it every couple of months it just it holds up so well it's just brilliant very cool my mine's a little different um i i may have caught bits and pieces of it on television here and there, because it, it'll make the rounds on um, on cable, or it would make the rounds on like a, a syndicated station, like where up where I was in, in New York, like WR WPIX. But uh, th- this really connected with me when I uh, I used to teach journalism, high school journalism, uh, in my first few years of teaching, and uh, my first couple of years of teaching, I showed I would show this, I would show another movie along with it, um, the movie Shattered Glass. Oh wow! Okay. With from uh, which which proves that Hayden Christensen can actually act. Um, yeah, that's a terrific movie. It's a really yeah. So we would watch those two movies because part of the journalism course that I used to teach, the intro to journalism course, part of it was basics of how to write, you know, for a newspaper, and then eventually you know writing for the student newspaper. But the other half of it was like media studies. So we would look at you know. Just a, a bunch of different stuff, and and uh, my students didn't always quite get all the president's men. Um, we had to do a lot of the historical context, and you're right; it is one of those movies where um, it is very dry. Like, not a lot actually. There's not a lot of action in the movie. Um, Al J. Pakula, who directed this, uh, directed the Pelican Brief, which is the first movie that's. Sp- I think he directed Pelican because it's the first movie that popped in my head when I thought of his movies. And that does have its fair share of accidents. It's also a really, really good movie, but yeah, you're right. And, uh, but we got some really, really good discussions, uh, out of it and about the first amendment and, and the right of freedom of the press and stuff. So you and I are going to, are going to talk about the movie, but before we do, um, I just want to give a 
Very quick plot synopsis. All the President's Men was released on April 7, 1976, and was the fourth highest grossing movie of 1976, raking in $70.6 million at the box office. The highest grossing movie of that year, by the way, was Rocky, which took in $117 million, and the second highest grossing movie, it must be noted, was a documentary called to fly which was created by the national air and space museum for use in its imax theater and made 86.6 million dollars i just thought that was interesting anyway rounding at the top five are the barbara streisand remake of a star is born at 80 million dollars at number three the omen was at number five with 60.9 million the film is based on the book of the same name, which was written by Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. They were two reporters at the Washington Post who broke the Watergate scandal in 1972 and 1973, which eventually led to resignation of President Nixon from office in August of 1974. The film is relatively faithful to at least the first half of the book, which came out in 1974, and covered the Watergate story from 72 up until early 74, just as Congress was launching an investigation into Watergate and Nixon's possible role in the scandal. The two would release a follow-up book in 1976 called The Final Days, which is about the last few months of the Nixon administration. There would be a television movie adaptation of The Final Days in 1989 with Lane Smith as Nixon. But our film covers Watergate from June 17, 1972 until January 20th of 1973. It was directed by Alan J. Pakula, and our main cast is as follows. Robert Redford, who produced the film, plays Bob Woodward. Dustin Hoffman plays Carl Bernstein. Jason Robards is Washington Post executive editor Ben Bradley. Jack Warden plays local news editor Harry Rosenfeld. Martin Balsam is post-managing editor Howard Simons. Hal Holbrook plays Deep Throat. Ned Beatty plays Dade County Chief Investigator Martin Dardis. Jane Alexander is bookkeeper Judy Miller. Stephen Collins is committee to re-elect Treasurer Hugh Sloan with a very young and I will say gorgeous Meredith Baxter, or as we knew her on Family Ties, Elise Keaton, playing his wife. Uh, Robert Walden plays Don Segretti. There's a number of other people in the cast, including a small role by F. Murray Abraham, but this is the gist of it. The film was nominated for eight Academy Awards and won four. Robards won for Best Supporting Actor. William Goldman, whom you may know better as the writer of The Princess Bride, won for Best Adapted Screenplay. And the film also won for Best Art Direction and Best Sound. The other awards it was nominated for but did not win were Best Supporting Actress to Jane Alexander. She lost out to Beatrice Strait for Network, which is another great news-slash-journalism film that needs its own episode of some, of some show. Best Editing, Best Director, and Best Picture, all of those went to Rocky. I'm going to do a relatively loose plot summary here. On June 17, 1972, five men are arrested for breaking into the Democratic National Headquarters at the Watergate Office Tower in Washington, D.C. The exact nature of the break-in is at first unclear, and a young Washington Post reporter named Bob Woodward is asked to cover the arraignment hearing. While the hearing is going on, Woodward takes notes and finds out that the men had bugging equipment, were four Cuban nationals as well as James McCord, an electronic surveillance operative who was formerly with the CIA. All of the men he discovers have CIA ties and have a connection to E. Howard Hunt, who is a former CIA employee, as well as Charles Colson, who is President Nixon's special counsel. 
Woodward is partnered with a younger, another young reporter, Carl Bernstein, who's very much the Oscar Madison to Felix, Woodward's Felix Unger. But they eventually get in sync, being pushed by executive editor Ben Bradley to make sure they're thorough in their investigation and turning in quality work. As the investigation into Watergate gets deeper, Woodward begins to contact Deep Throat, who was in 1976 the most famous anonymous source in modern-day journalism. And yes, the name was inspired by the infamous porno flick. He would eventually be revealed in the 2000s to be then-FBI Deputy Director W. Mark Felt. While Felt doesn't exactly give Woodward specific information, he does advise the reporter to what is the most famous line in the film, follow the money. Woodward and Bernstein begin to look into various members of the Committee to Re-Elect the President, or CREEP, for short, and focus in on Hugh Sloan, who was the committee's treasurer. Sloan verifies that there was a slush fund created at Creep that was paying the Watergate burglars as well as a number of other people for various acts of political espionage, or as it's called in the book and the film, rat-fucking, to sabotage various Democratic nominees through the primaries. The person running all of this is H.R. Halderman, who is Nixon's chief of staff, and toward the end of the film, Deep Throats reveals to Woodward that his life and Bernstein's life are in danger. They relay this information to Bradley, who understands yet urges them to press on with the investigation, and they do. Now, while the book continues well into Nixon's second term, the film ends on January 20th, 1973, with a scene of Woodward and Bernstein typing up another story about the Watergate scandal, while Nixon takes the oath of office once again. There is an epilogue told through a flash of teletype messages that go through 73 and 74, ending with August 9th, 1974, with the resignation of President Nixon and the swearing-in of Gerald Ford. Kalabak, Tassad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, District and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. So um, my listeners have heard enough of of, of me and, and now have the, just the plot. Rob, uh, what – just to start off, like – I I love this movie as well. What is it about this movie? Again, like as we said in our in our short intros, there it's it is a little bit dry. It's about people kind of knocking on doors and writing things down. But what draws you into this this as a film? Well, it, it's funny. Uh, uh, you know, we live in this sort of spoiler culture now. You know, it's like spoiler alert, spoiler alert. I don't want to know anything. Yeah. And it's, you know, the idea is like, if you know what's going to happen at the end of the movie, it's ruined for you. Mm-hmm. This, this movie is the perfect example of how that's not true. Because most people know what happened. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, I mean, obviously, if you're showing it to somebody very young 
and they are completely unaware of history, maybe. But, but, but you know, I would say 99% of the people watching that are going to bother to watch this movie know what the outcome is. And so, therefore, you would say, well, then it's not terribly exciting, but yet it is. It's, it's the TikTok of how these two guys came so close so many times to not getting the story and, and about how much things were against them. And yet it all came together into one of the great, and I, I use great as terms of, uh, in, in the context of significant, not necessarily, yeah. you know, great for the country, but one of the great moments of American history that a president resigned due to this. I mean, it's just, you know, that's never happened before. Hopefully it'll never have to happen again. Uh, but it, you know, it, and the idea that like these guys sort of stumbled into this thing and they, they discover this story and it just starts growing and growing and growing. And, you know, a lot of it really is, you mentioned Alan J. Pakula. It is the direction. It is the way a scene can be built around someone just accidentally saying a sentence that goes on for a couple words too long. And that yeah. turns into another thing. All these little, th- you know, just that idea. I mean, yeah, there is some threat, some threat of, of like bloodshed. There's, you know, they go to visit one of the witnesses and she has a line or something like they're watching me, you know, mm-hmm. so you're like, OK, there is that kind of paranoia. But there aren't scenes of people running in parking lots being chased by cars. You know, there's none of that. Um, the only the, the closest you get to that is really when the scene with Woodward and Bernstein where they turn up the music because they know they're being bugged. That's but just that has such a powerful moment to it. And, and it's really fairly simple. And it's such a, a well-played scene, too, because he's playing Rachmaninoff or whatever, and he's he's blasting it, and then they just sit down at a typewriter yeah, yeah. and um, and uh, and are just typing back and, and forth to one another. And the whole – that whole part of it, this sort of um, very real – I mean – they're very realistic portrayal of something that actually happened. Uh, the cloak and dagger of it, that the, the little bit of cloak and dagger that was in there, that was, um, you know, aside from deep throat, which we'll, you know, we'll get into, but the whole idea of that, they were putting themselves in danger, especially as they got deeper and deeper and deeper into the story. Cause the story just essentially lands in their lap. Um, Woodward was sent to cover this arraignment hearing that's completely random. You know, it's just like a burglary and he's sent there because he's essentially, you know, he's Jimmy Olsen. You know, <laughs> he's he's not anybody important. At I mean, Woodward would go on to be, I think, the executive editor of The Post like much later in his career. But but um, this is a point where it, like him and him and Bernstein are like hungry. And I think it was um, Jack. Was it Jack Warden's character who just who says they're young, they're hungry, and he calls them humpers? I think it was. Yeah, like, yeah. Humpers. yeah, yeah, and he, and he says to I think Martin Balsam, "Don't you remember when you were hungry?" Yeah, and so because Woodward's the one who he's at the hearing, and and the the guy in the in the bench behind him or in front of him is is a important, like not important, but a rich lawyer, like a lawyer that would never actually be at an arraignment hearing like that unless the person one of the people being arraigned somebody involved was important in some way or another it's like he's too expensive a lawyer and and um and he was an actor who i couldn't place but i've seen him in things Mm -hmm. that lawyer that just one scene with that lawyer where he's like well i'm not here 
and Redford starts hearing, you know, he just starts writing these notes down. And again, you're right. It's just kind of one thing leads to another. And, and, and they hit so many dead ends too, or they're roadblocked here and there. Like, you know, this person won't talk and, you know, nobody goes on, um, on record as this. And I think when they try to go after, uh, Haldeman at one point, they, they strike too early and it just, right. it, it sets them back. And, um, and it should be noted that, um, and I think most people who know who know this film know that it's it was based on a book of the same name. And the as I noted in my synopsis, the book actually covers from the burglary in seventy two up until the beginning of seventy four. And then it's the second book, The Final Days, which covers the rest of the administration. But the film stops with um Nixon's second inauguration and it was a deliberate part of the deliberate on the part of the filmmakers just to tighten up what would have been a much longer film. And the book is out. Have you ever read the book? I have never read the book. Uh, I, it seems like something I would have read over time, but I, but I, I have not gotten around to it. I checked it out of the public library uh, a couple, a couple, a couple of months ago. Cause I knew I was going to do this episode because I just wanted to, you know, I just wanted to read it. Um, and uh, it is really worth the read. It's, it's a long book. And it is dense in places, and it's just as dry in places. But um, Woodward and Bernstein do make it very dramatic. <laughs> it's, it's kind of amazing, the turnaround, that they produced the book and then the movie. I mean, Nixon resigned in August of 1974. Mm-hmm. This movie came out April of 1976. That's, mm-hmm. that's extraordinary. Yeah, Redford bought Redford bought the rights to the book like almost right away, because the book was like a huge bestseller. Sure. And it was – and it was – it ends like it came out as they were preparing to impeach Nixon. Because I think one of the things about Watergate, I mean, we attach the phrase gate to every scandal lately. Yes. <laughs> but the Watergate's an actual building, and that's where right. it comes from. I've been to the Watergate. And uh, and for the other thing, and I found that younger people don't always understand, understand the scandal either, because the scandal is not as salacious as um, – the Monica Lewinsky scandal of the late nineties. It's, it is an complicated Washington insider political scandal. It is a slush fund. Nixon was basically trying to rig the election or tilt things or the supposedly allegedly was trying to rig the election. And uh, there was a slush fund created to do all of these underhanded political espionage acts. And that's the break in was the thing that, where they got sloppy and they got caught, and this is where things started to snowball. Had this break, had this break in, never happened, or, or they had not gotten caught breaking into the Watergate building, that probably this probably would have never happened, and Nixon would have served, you know, his second term. And um, by the time the book came out, uh, Nixon was on the road to impeachment. They had essentially uh, – they the articles of impeachment got out of the House Judiciary Committee and the House was set to vote on impeachment when he decided to resign. So because basically you have those, those smoking guns, um, certain tapes put things inside the Nixon White House and it's been – basically suggested that he knew a lot more than he actually let on. But uh, unfortunately, we'll never really know exactly what Nixon's total role in the whole thing was. But it, it did bring bring about a downfall. And it was this, this story that broke it. 
you mentioned how how it's how, how Pakula puts it together, and and it has there's a couple of very very famous scenes, famous shots. The Library of Congress shot, I think, is probably the most iconic. Yeah, they even they even parodied it on The Simpsons. Yes, <laughs> the episode where Silent uh, Silent Bob Sideshow Bob was uh, running for mayor of, right, uh, of yeah. Springfield, <laughs> and it's got that great shot. It's that overhead shot of they zoom out of the two of them. In the Library of Congress, uh, and it like I said, it won for best sound. Um, it has one of the best opening. Oh yeah, <laughs> ever making it making a typewriter sound like a gunshot is just brilliant. The bam, bam, and you're you're you are super up close to the fuzzy ink as it hits the paper. That is a brilliant opening. timing, the president flying all the way across the world, across the Atlantic Ocean, arriving almost exactly, exactly as scheduled at 9.30 in the Capitol Plaza, so that he can go up the steps of the House of Representatives, go into the chamber, and address the members of the House and the Senate, the Supreme Court, the Diplomatic Corps of Washington, all of whom are inside, waiting for him in the chamber of the House of Representatives. Speaker, the President of the United States. And the president, accompanied by the escort committee, comes down the central aisle, approaching the podium, greets members of his cabinet and those who are waiting to be confirmed as members of his cabinet as he reaches the rostrum. He shakes hands with the speaker, Carl Albert, the happy president, smiling. Ladies and gentlemen, President Nixon will, in a moment, address the Congress and the people of the United States. Not only that, um, they let the paper sit there for a few seconds to um, almost lull you in so that the gun that that typewriter first typewriter hit is jarring. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost the polar opposite of the opening of Contact, with uh, where where Zemeckis had the did the opposite. He had the radio signals get less and less and less and less until you have all this silence, and everybody in the theater is uncomfortable because they're not used to sitting in silence for that long in the middle of a movie. So- That's interesting. <laughs> I never would have made that comparison, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the casting because this movie is, in my mind, is brilliantly cast. Oh, yeah. What's your opinion of, of, let's talk Redford and Hoffman. What's your opinion of Redford and Hoffman as? Well, this is, I mean, these are two movie stars at the peak of their powers. Mm -hmm. They have an extraordinary chemistry 
whether the real Woodward and Bernstein had it, I don't know. But these guys seem to fit together so well, and they couldn't be more diametrically opposed. I mean, you've got Redford, who is ridiculous, you know, the handsomest handsome guy <laughs> that was ever in a movie. Do you, you ever heard that famous story about why Robert Redford did not get the graduate, right? Have you ever heard that story? No. Okay. Because, I mean, apparently he was in very early talks with Mike Nichols to play what would end up being Dustin Hoffman's character. Ben Braddock. Graduate, ben Braddock, the graduate. And uh, apparently the idea was, like, Nichols met him and was, like, immediately skeptical. And Redford was sort of like, well, why, you know, wouldn't you give me a chance? And so Nichols said... Um, what was your reaction when you struck out with a girl? And Redford's answer was, what do you mean? And Nichols <laughs> said, that's exactly why you're not going to get this part. You know, it's like, you know, Redford doesn't live in a universe where a woman says no. And so, you know, you've got this beautiful icon of, of manliness versus this troll, you know, this, you know, I mean, you could just tell that this Bernstein doesn't shower much. He probably sleeps in his clothes. He smells like cigarettes and coffee. And he's so rumpled. And yet they have a perfect – the scene where Bernstein rewrites Woodward's copy mm-hmm. is so good where he's like, you know, you're not doing it. And he just sits down at Woodward's desk and starts rewriting his copy. And it takes Woodward a couple seconds to realize this is better. And he lets him do it. Here, here's my notes. You might as well, if you're going to do it, do it right <laughs> What's wrong with it? Nothing, nothing. It's good. Then what are you doing with it? I'm just helping. It's a little fuzzy. May I have it? I don't think you're saying what you mean. I know exactly what I mean. Not here. I can't tell from this whether Hunt works for Colson or Colson works for Hunt. May I have it, please? Some of your conclusions. May I have it? Yes, I'm not looking for a fight. I'm not looking for a fight either. I'm just aware of the fact that you've only been here nine months. What does that got to do with anything? Well, I've been in the business since I'm 16. What are you saying? Well, I'm trying to tell you that if you'd read mine and then read yours... Yeah, read yours? Yeah. I walked by, gave yours a glance, it didn't look right, so I just figured I'd refine it a little. That first paragraph has to have more clarity. The reader's gonna understand it. You don't mention Colson's name for the third paragraph. I think mine's better, but you go ahead and read it. If you think yours is better, we'll give yours to the desk. I've got Colson's name up front. He was a White House consultant and nobody knows right. it. Yours is better. Do it, do it right. Here are my notes. If you're gonna hype it, hype it with the facts. I don't mind what you did. I mind the way you did. Woodward, Bernstein, you're both on the story now. Don't fuck it up. They they, they are so perfect together, and uh, th- there is no star. You know, like there mm-hmm. is no, there is not Redford's. You know, the star and Hoffman's the co-star. No, they are really fifty-fifty in this movie, and then they are backed up by what I consider one of the great collection of character actors oh, ever yeah. assembled for a movie. I mean, this is like 12 Angry Men level a murderer's row of, <laughs> of great character actors. You've got Jack Warden, uh, uh, Jason Robards, Martin Balsam, one of my personal favorites. Uh, you know, all uh, Hal Holbrook, of course. I mean, just this great collection of guys in their 50s that look like they've been through a lot. They come to the story with this feeling of authority there's a great scene where Jason Robards tells a story about how he yes. pissed off he Lyndon pissed off Johnson. Lyndon Johnson and they got stuck with Herbert Hoover because he reported the story too early. 
Mitchell know he was talking to a reporter? Yeah, but I think I woke him up. And good notes? Verbatim. He really said that about Mrs. Graham. Well, I'll cut the words of her tit and print it. Why? It was the family newspaper. You know, once when I was reporting, Lyndon Johnson's top guy gave me the word. They were looking for a successor for J. Edgar Hoover. I wrote it, and the day it appeared, Johnson held a press conference and appointed Hoover head of the FBI for life. When he was done, turned to his top guy, and the president said, call Ben Bradley and tell him, fuck you. <laughs> well, everybody said, you did it, Ben. You screwed up. You stuck us with Hoover forever. I screwed up, but I wasn't wrong. How much can you tell me about Deep Throat? How much do you need to know? You trust him? Yeah. I can't do the reporting for my reporters, which means I have to trust them. And I hate trusting anybody. They are just so ably, they are so brilliant and so believable as the guys they're supposed to be that to me it's so pleasurable watching them perform. And and I really could have seen a whole movie of just Ben Bradley and these other guys just BSing back and forth. And, and you know, it's just brilliantly cast. I, I, I love I love that scene too because um, Woodward and Bernstein are in the in in his office with him and they have the same looks on their face that I think you and I would have on our face just listening to these mm-hmm. guys, these guys who have you're right these vets who you just admire they obviously admire and you know I, I know they're eager to get on their story but sometimes you just you want to hear these guys talk yeah. you know and, and 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 they have this look on their face and Redford you're right about Redford um and there's a, there's an interesting story a, a bit of trivia about this movie is that um they tried initially to shoot at the Washington Post but they had to recreate the newsroom on a set because of just various logistics were getting in the way. Um, and they did, they like, they painstakingly recreated the bullpen in the newsroom of the Washington Post for the movie. Uh, but Redford visited, Redford and Hoffman visited the Post to, you know, just to study, you know, to prepare, whatever. And the people at the Post were like, oh my God, Robert Redford. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they thought Hoffman <laughs> was basically like a copy boy or a mailman. Like <laughs> they had no idea. They they just totally didn't recognize Hoffman because he's standing there in this sort of and and I love Hoffman's hair in this movie. It's that seventies winged, oh, feathered. Yeah. Oh, oh god, man. and he just looked like any other ordinary schlub. And then there's Redford and Redford. I love Redford as an actor. Um, I love Butch and Sundance. Um, I actually like. The Great Gatsby. I'm not the hugest fan of any adaptation of The Great Gatsby, but of of the adaptations I've seen, that's that one I, I like more than the others. But there, Redford has a tendency to play Robert Redford. You know, like, or or it's hard to separate Robert Redford from the character he's playing. And Bob Woodward does not look like Robert Redford. No, but 
you still believe that <laughs> that Redford, like that Redford is Woodward. That in the yeah. back of because in you and, and I came from reading the book too, but even before I read the book, that like you know in the back of Woodward's mind, he is kind of the dashing like. You know, not dashingly handsome, but like the, the intrepid dashing reporter. Redford really holds on to that. And God, Hoffman, Hoffman plays Bernstein the way Bernstein's described. Like Bernstein was annoying the crap out of everybody at the post, and they needed to get him a job so they'd, he'd leave them alone. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, he's such a nudge. I mean, he just, uh-huh. there's the one thing where he goes to that guy's office. And he sits out in the lobby for like eight hours. And yes. the secretary's like, well, he can't see you today. And he's like, I came all this way. I came all the way. I really, I, you know, I wasted my time. And he's, and he's just like all these just so, and you're like, oh, right already. Jeez, <laughs> you just leave me alone. Yeah, I mean, you know that, that the, the character of Bernstein doesn't have the ability that Woodward has of just those movies. Again, within the context of this movie, of the movie star looks and easy charm that gets him into certain places. He has to just do the shoe leather and just nudge and nudge and nudge. Cause he just doesn't have the physical gifts that, that Woodward does, which is yeah. he can just sort of enter in a room and people are going to be like, Whoa, oh my goodness. Oh, but at the same time, Bernstein is very charming and he's the one that talks to girl who dated one of like the guys on the inside into yeah. like, getting a story from him simply because they used to date. And like, he's, you know, and it's so funny the way he's kind of rude because he brings it up to the girl and he's like, did, did he try to sleep with you? Like, he asks really <laughs> private questions, you know? But he gets away with it because he's kind of – he's sort of charming in his own way. And um, it, it, it it's clear it, – what, what's great about it, you said, you know, how there's not one star of this movie and it really, really shows too because they don't focus on one reporter more than the other. Right. You know, I know that very often it's – you know, Woodward – when you speak of the two, Woodward always comes before Bernstein. Just I don't know if that was – intentional if that's just it rolls off the tongue better but they show Hoffman gets as much of a role as would as Redford does with um Hal Holbrook and and the whole deep throat thing because I think out of the, the whole Watergate investigation is probably the thing that people remember the oh, most sure yeah yeah um the most and, dramatic yeah and although at the same time what I liked about it because there were there were different ways that Redford uh, Redford that Woodward had to communicate with Deep Throat. Um, he would put a red flag in, in a pot out on his apartment balcony or Deep Throat would make certain notations in the inside of uh, Woodward's copy of uh, the New York Times. And they'd meet in the same parking garage in, in Arlington. And, you know, and but it's presented in such a way that's almost matter of fact. You know, it's never – it's there, you see it, but it's never like um, – like there aren't arrows pointing to the red flat. Like, right. oh my god, he's like, you know, it's not. Remember the end of Attack of the Clones where they show the Death Star and the thing, and you're just like, after a while, you're like, we get it, George. It's the Death Star. You don't have to show it to us five times. It's never like that. It's so like, and that's what a lot of this movie is. It's just there's like, you really have to follow this movie. Woodward doesn't have the bat signal outside his house the way yeah. Michael Keaton does in Batman Returns. Exactly. <laughs> Um, what do you think of Holbrook as Deep Throat? Because back in back in 1976, nobody knew who he was. Uh, no, I think he's great. I mean, you know, he he, you buy the idea that he wants to provide the information, but he doesn't. He can't handhold Woodward, you know, mm-hmm. because obviously, if he gives him too much information, 
people are going to find be able to figure out. What yeah. Now we know. We now know who Deep Throat is. Yes. There's no there's no mysteries left in the world. But uh, you know. No, you get and you get his frustration, and then the, the point where they kind of shoot too soon. You mentioned that earlier, yeah. And they kind of scare off everybody, and 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 uh, Deep Throat is really angry because he's like, "You've made people sympath, you've made Haldeman look sympathetic." <laughs> I know. You know, and it's like, you know, what kind of incompetence does it take to make Woodward, you know, make Haldeman and Ehrlichman look sympathetic? But but he does so. You get that sense of frustration, and it's certainly shot very dramatically with all the shadows and all that stuff. And Hal Holbrook had that great voice, and not I don't say had, he still does. Yeah, that gravelly kind of deep voice. So it's perfect. I think it's a you know again, it's perfectly cast to just in playing that tiny part. Where are you? Stuck. Story is stalled on us. And you thought I'd help? I'll never quote you. I wouldn't quote you even as an anonymous source. I mean, you'd be on deep background. You can trust me, you know that. Come on. Can you tell me what you know? You tell me what you know. Hunt worked for Colson at the White House. Hunt was investigating Kennedy at Chappaquiddick. That should tell you a lot. What else? Well, we're beginning to hear a lot about a lawyer at Creep named Gordon Liddy. Who's... very bright guys and things got out of hand hunts come in from the cold supposedly he's got a lawyer with twenty-five thousand dollars in a brown paper bag they follow the money what do you mean where well i can't tell you that but you could tell me that no i have to do this my way you tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. 
yeah, everybody was right in their zone here. And you have um, even performances by some of the people they're questioning. Um, Stephen, a very, very young Stephen Collins. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Plays yeah. Coulson. And this is a few years before he would be in um, Star Trek The Motion Picture. Uh, and they keep coming back to him because he's essentially their key guy. Um, and his wife, and, and I was like, um, I, I saw the movie. I was like, I recognize her. And she has one of the best. She has a great line. She, she, she opens the door and she looks at them and she knows who they are. And she says, this is an honest house. Hmm. And it's, um, and I, I looked at the credits. It's Meredith Baxter Burney. And I was like. Oh, <laughs> wow. I don't think I remember that. Okay. Yeah. I, I just I checked the credits because I was like, who played? Because it was one of those. It was I'm one of those people who will check the credits of something if it's bugging me. Oh, yeah. Sure. And and I was like, oh, wow. But um, but it is a great moment because there's so much paranoia among, like you said, among the people who are being questioned and they're low level employees, too. I mean, Colson was a treasure of creep, but the other person, the, the woman they get, the one woman they get to talk, Jane Alexander plays her, and she was nominated for um, Best Supporting Actress, was a bookkeeper. Right. You know, like, they're they're starting from wherever they can get in, and the reason that they shoot badly with Halderman is Halderman's the uh, chief of staff, and and as Deep Throat points out, if, like, if you get Halderman, then you're inside the White House, and this gets very, very real very quickly, because right up to that point, it's you know, as I said in the synopsis, it's it's rat fucking, as they call it. Mm. This pity little petty things that are run by people like this guy Don Segretti, who's this kind of shyster. You know, it's it's all this underhanded stuff, all of which, if it never got past that stage, would have just been kind of blown off. And never- yeah, yeah. I mean, these a lot of these guys are very defensive about something they didn't need to be defensive about. And it was that defensiveness that tripped people's alarms. And yeah. there, there is a moment in the movie where, where uh, Red, uh, Woodward is talking to Ben Bradley and he's talking about a phone call that he had with somebody. And he's like, I was talking to so-and-so and they said that that uh, none of the people involved are guilty. And they were like, what did you expect him to say? And he's like, <laughs> I didn't even ask him about that. Why did they offer that? I didn't ask that they were guilty. It's, it's that kind of reflexive paranoia. That get that got Nixon and the people and the people around him in trouble because you know as I don't we're not going to get too far into the history of this stuff and I'm not mm-hmm. an expert in any way but like you know Nixon pretty much had that election sewn up yeah you know like he wasn't in any real fear of losing and yet he still went way overboard by doing all this stuff and so it's that kind of you know weird hubris that got them in trouble yeah and that's a question they essentially are kind of asking through a lot of this is like why all of why is all of this happening when it wasn't necessary you know like and and that that's what perplexes a lot of them through a lot of their investigation of it yeah. something like i said is something i was saying a little earlier is that this movie um you're right it, it is one you can listen to but you have to, it's it's like those early really good episodes of the West Wing where you had to pay attention oh, yeah. to every word because it's a quiet movie. Ironically, it won for best sound, but it's not overscored. No, um, that's, yeah, you're right. There's not a lot of effects. Um, and it really is 
something you have to listen to and, and watch. And it's, it's conversation after conversation after conversation. Um, and it, it doesn't go like 100% realistic with, with the process of journalism, which can be very, very boring, but it's not, you know, Lois and Clark getting into trouble yet again, you know, it's, <laughs> which is, and then there were times when the Superman stuff was pretty, you know, it's like, you know, it was, it made, it was very, it was, it's not as glamorous. It, it's glamorous to a number of people, all the president's men, because of this is like the, I think to somebody who's a really earnest young reporter or somebody who want, earnestly wants to be a journalist, they would look at this and see like, you know, oh, I want to be the person who gets that, you know, like oh, yeah. that. Oh, it's the ultimate investigative journalism story. Yeah. I mean, they brought down a president. You yeah. know, I mean, like, you're not going to get any higher than, I mean, the closest anybody has come, I would argue, is Spotlight. And, mm-hmm. and of course, Spotlight was compared very favorably to all the president's men when it came yeah. out. I did it on, on my show. It just, it had that feeling of like, you know, these are these intrepid band of, of shoe leather detectives bringing down a massive, powerful entity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're right about like having to really pay attention. I mean, there's a whole scene in this movie that hinges on tricking one of their witnesses into revealing something she doesn't even know she's revealing with the whole revealing of the name of they're like, well, we're going to say this name and we're going <laughs> to pretend that we've already got the name because, oh, no, no, we know what this name means. This name means this. And if she doesn't say anything, then we know like and you have to really kind of follow the the linguistics of that of like, wait. It's the inflection of, okay, and then they've sort of, you know, they don't fool her exactly, but they're playing a little bit of a game, and they, yeah, they don't explain it. They really have to just, you have to be paying attention. Yeah, and it's, um, and it's a really tightly written movie, even the fact that it's a pretty long movie. I mean, it's, it's what, two, it's not two and a half hours, it's just over two hours, so for the time, it was a pretty standard length of a, of a drama, um, but it's it, there's not a lot of fat to trim. Nope. In the film, um, and uh, and and I, the, one of the notations I made was, you know, I I lived in um, I lived in Arlington, so and I worked in D.C. for about five years, uh, from about 1999 until about 2004, and I moved down here to Charlottesville, and I know that's 20 years, um, 20 25 years after Watergate and after this movie. But this film still feels like Washington, D.C. to me. And that sort of um, the Watergate is, like I said, it's such a political insider scandal. Like, I, I, I don't I don't know what it was like to read the paper back in the early 70s when this was going on. But I, I so I don't know how much how early, people understood how early on. What was happening? Because, like I said, the only thing I can compare that scandal to is is uh, Clinton in in the late nineties, and that when the Lewinsky thing broke, that was pretty easily understood because it was the president having an affair, and then there was the whole obstruction of justice thing. This was like, who is doing what here, and you know, is there some sort of link? And it really was a, you know, like I said, they have to create the tension of things that aren't necessarily going to, you know, happen. There's no silkwood scene 
Was it Silkwood? Mm-hmm. Where, where, where Meryl Streep's looking in a rear view mirror? Yeah, and, yeah. Yep. There, yeah, there's no, there, the closest you come to that is that scene outside the parking garage where Redford thinks he's, uh, I keep saying Redford, Woodward thinks he's being followed. Right. And he turns around and it's this, you know, very cop movie, zoom in on him, and there's nothing there. It's almost like a fake out or something. And like, you know, there's there's a couple of scenes where, you know, when he's switching cabs and things that, that kind of heighten the tension. But it's almost like Pakula and Goldman had to create the tension that was in there, especially around the deep throat. But they didn't want to overplay their hand there because it would have completely thrown off the balance of the rest of the film. Right. And all their targets are never seen in this movie other than just images on a TV screen. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, there's no actors in this movie playing Haldeman or Ehrlichman or G. Gordon Liddy or Howard Hunt or Richard Nixon. Nixon is just this figure on television yeah. who's occasionally mentioned, uh, you know. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, all the quote unquote villains of the piece, depending on your point of view, yeah. are completely off screen. That's a pretty gutsy way to do it. And it makes sense because, of course, these people didn't interact with those guys. They weren't at that level. They didn't get in there. I mean, there's a scene in the movie Nixon, the Oliver Stone movie, which yeah. I really love, where he <coughs> mentions those guys as uh, uh, Woodward and Fernstein. <laughs> because, and then like, and within the inner circle, all those people just consider those two guys like mosquitoes. Yeah. You know, it's like, who are these two idiots that are wasting time, investigate, you know, and it slowly grows and grows and grows. But when they're first mentioned, you know, you as an audience member, you're like, ah, huh? I know what's coming, but to these guys, they're just, it, you know, it's like they're not even worth worth paying attention to. Yeah, and it's it's the whole movie. This whole movie here is about their tenacity. Yep. And um, and I I personally like um, like I said, it ends on Nixon's second inauguration in a great ending shot as well. Of uh, it's set up of this balance of the two of them just typing away. While the footage, while the news just plays, because the television's always on in the newsroom, and, and you hear Nixon, I think he's taking the oath of office, yeah. and they're just typing, and they're typing, and they're typing, and it's just, it's, you know what comes. And then, um, very cleverly, uh, because you know, they could have just put title cards up saying, you know, so-and-so was indicted, so-and-so was indicted, Nixon resigned, and blah, blah, blah. But they do it with an old-school teletype machine mm-hmm. where it's just – and it's just – it's a great – again, it, it, it's, it, it ends so great in the way it begins with the, with, with the typewriter and stuff and, and just this sort of – and it, and it almost um, – it's almost like a – just like if you're comparing the, the typewriter at the beginning of the film to a gunshot, this is almost like a machine gun <laughs> – because when you get into 73 and then into 74 and this thing does blow wide open and you look at the events that are being teletyped out, it is – it just snowballs. So it is sort of like one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. And and then the final one is that Nixon resigns and um, and Gerald Ford is uh, sworn in as president. And it's just this, uh, this great, great bookend to the, uh, to the film. Results of the latest Gallup poll? Half the country never even heard of the word Watergate. Nobody gives a shit. You guys are probably pretty tired, right? Well, you should be. Go on home. Get a nice hot bath. Rest up 15 minutes. Then get your asses back in gear. 
we're under a lot of pressure, you know, and you put us there. Nothing's riding on this except the uh, First Amendment, the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Not that any of that matters. But if you guys fuck up again, I'm going to get mad. Chief Justice will administer the oath of office to the President of the United States of America, Mr. Chief Justice. Are you ready to take the constitutional oath? If you will place your left hand on the Bible and raise your right hand, and please repeat after me. I, Richard Nixon, do solemnly swear. I, Richard Nixon, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve and protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God.
if you're talking like modern day journalism movies, it kind of it kind of is one of the gold standard. Oh yeah, ones. Oh sure, yeah. I can't. I really can't think of a better journalism movie yeah. just because it gets the details. It even has time for some like philosophical. Like I love the scene of, of the two of them arguing about what you can deduce from a certain question. Mm-hmm. They're kind of arguing from their own points of view. And, you know, uh, Woodward has a thing of, like, a guy comes up to you and asks you what time it is. And what can you deduce from that? Am I being followed or is this guy lost? You know, and then uh, Bernstein says, you know, you listening to an hour, uh, the, the radio for an hour straight, you don't hear a single commercial. Is that AM or FM? Like, you know, and how you can make misjudgments based on your predilections of what you want to believe. I love that it has time for all that. It really is. It's just, it's a rare movie of everybody, I think, working at the, the peak of their powers. The director, the writers, the actors. The the, the, the set is great. You mentioned the set. I mean, the set is yeah. perfect. It's got ashtrays and garbage <laughs> cans and, you know. It's just messy. Scenes. Yeah. It's messy. Yeah, it looks like the Daily Planet. I mean, it really looks like you wouldn't necessarily have a problem with Christopher Reeve walking in. You know, with with his glasses on and Margot Kidder or whatever, but um, it it just it's just everybody working perfectly, and then they're discussing something that is the most important thing of the seventies. I mean, just everybody was watching it and following it. It was just one of the most amazing news stories ever in American history. Yeah, I uh, I just flashed the scene where um, I don't remember who was on the phone, but Sally Jenkins. Who is still with the post, by the way? She's in. I think she writes for the sports section. Um, had had dinner with one of the people they're talking about, and Robards is on the phone. He says, uh, "I don't care what you did in Sally's apartment. I just want to know what you said in Sally's apartment." Because the right. guy's like, "I got a wife and a car and a dog and a house and a man. and you're like, and that's this one of the because like Jason Robards. Um, in a lot of the things I'd seen him in, he's playing like the grumpy old man or he's playing um, – sometimes he would phone it in. I think the only other thing I, – I remember a few things. I remember him the day after very vividly because um, I remember the scene where he hides under the dash of his car to avoid being blinded by the nuclear explosion. Oh, oh man. <laughs> but <laughs> sci-fi used to run that like all the time. But he's so good in this movie. I mean, like, I can oh, totally terrific. see where the where the where the Oscar came from because he is just like you said. He's he's done this, and and the fact that that he is Ben Bradley shows so much confidence in these two guys, and he and even gets frustrated with them too. Where. Uh, God damn it, what is somebody going to go on the record? Yeah, exactly. What's Satan, you know, which is what he would call them. Uh, and, and there was that, that one shout out reference to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, and it's interesting because you get movies like this and you get movies like Spotlight. Shattered Glass is kind of its own animal because it's about um, two very tenacious reporters taking down another one. Right. Um and then you have two other movies that I would put up there that I that I that I used to, that I love to watch, but they're they're almost like a media criticism type of film. And one of them is uh one of them is broadcast news, sure, and network. But those oh, like oh boy. yeah, which is so much of what the media is and what it is becoming as opposed to what it could be. You know, like there's it's such a broad spectrum of and 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 this um 
I don't know if you would put it up there with some of the better political thrillers around as well, too. Uh, yeah. Like The Manchurian oh, yeah. Candidate or, or – um, and I'm starting to draw a blank with <laughs> Three Days of the Condor yeah. or The Parallax View or any – although that's a little more – like just kind of more of a thriller than a political. But yeah, yeah no, I absolutely would. Uh, can you imagine – you mentioned Network. Can you imagine that in the 1977 Oscars, the – the five candidates for best picture were okay. There's one that bound for glory. That one's the kind of the odd lot, mm-hmm. but bound for glory, all, all the president's men network taxi driver and Rocky and Rocky wins. The- <laughs> I mean, that's a hell of a year for movies. It is Rocky, Rocky won. I can't begrudge Rocky because Rocky has certainly shown it to be, you know, an enduring no. classic. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good Lord. What a bumper crop. Of great movies to have, mm-hmm. you could argue out of five Best Picture nominees, four of them are classics. That's yeah, just, it's so unheard of. Yeah, and this deserves all the accolades it gets. And um, it's, to my knowledge, I mean, you probably could stream it through Amazon if if you wanted if you wanted to. I I I checked the 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 school where I teach had a copy of the DVD in the library, so I just. Grabbed I'm it. I'm picturing the camera up over your head as you're checking it out. Yeah, it was larger just... <laughs> and larger, farther, farther. <laughs> but uh, it's, yeah, it's readily available on, and and the book is readily available in, in in your public library as well. So it's it's not it's not a very obviously it's not an obscure movie. It's it's not very hard to find. And um, this is my uh, my continued frustration with with Netflix streaming and Hulu streaming is that they when they rotate films out. Uh. Um, those of us, those people, see, I still get DVD. I'm like the guy who still gets the DVDs from Netflix. <laughs> and there's one guy at Netflix Central that whose job it is to send you. Yeah, DVDs. yeah. I've. Um, I will say though, for anybody listening who's like me, and maybe I should, uh, don't get Blu-rays from Netflix. They're always crapping out. I, I don't know. Maybe it's my player, but but um, hmm. stick to DVD. I, maybe it's because they're sensitive in the way they're shipping in the mail. They, they're a little bit more prone to damage. But um, but yeah, I'm still the person who gets DVDs from Netflix, so that it's definitely available through there. And um, But like I said, I got it for... I checked it out for free out of the library. So... Um, but yeah, and it's uh, it's got some the, the DVD version. I had had a few extras. I don't know what else is there, but it's a it's also what I like is that it's also a good gateway into looking into Watergate, which is an incredibly complicated scandal, um, and a, at a a time in our history that uh, that really does look that if you do a really thorough look at it and, and read a lot more about it, it's it's more and more fascinating the more and more you go. Um, any less? Th- <laughs> I was just saying, compared to what we've lived through this year, it looks kind of quaint. It does. <laughs> It's yeah, it's it's almost innocent. <laughs> oh god, this year's been insane. Maybe maybe we're just looking back on a more innocent time of political scandal and yeah, and, yeah. and and a time when journalists were were looking at money as opposed to like, you know I don't even want to get into the specifics of some no, of the stuff we heard over the last few weeks. Oh my god. Yeah. yeah. Um, any final thoughts in this movie before we uh, before we head out? Uh, it's I'm, well. It's it's a classic, and it's a classic that's not homework. Uh, and a lot of classics can can sound like homework. I know people that like 
uh, don't want to see Citizen Kane because it sounds like it's homework. You know, oh, you should see it. Oh, I and, love Citizen and, Kane. <laughs> right, I love Citizen Kane, and I, I mean, I watch Citizen Kane for pleasure. But I know that once a movie has become becomes too revered, it can sound like it's homework, and that can, yeah. you know, people can want to tune out. This movie is not that. I think this movie is is absolutely fascinating. Um, even if you're not particularly, you know, presidential minded or interested in this stuff, I just think it's a great thriller. And if you're interested in American history, it has that extra layer of resonance to you. But I think it works on virtually every level. It really is one of the great examples of studio filmmaking of the 1970s. You know, I mean, movie, mm-hmm. studios, movie studios now are, you know, they're just basically uh, algorithms that just yeah. spit, spit movies out for the most part. But back in the 70s when movie studios were like, well, we don't know what the hell we're doing anymore. The old system doesn't work, so let's just hand all the movies over to these young guys in bell bottoms. What the hell? You could make these movies and, and make things for adults and make things that were sophisticated and challenging and interesting. And you could also make them, you know, as a big release and make money from them. You know, like yeah. they were This was a mainstream movie. This was not an art house movie. Yeah. So I just th- I just think it works on every level and it holds up perfectly well. And the, the, the new the, the, there's some 40th anniversary version that has a commentary by Redford, oh. which, which is really good. He's really interesting. And because he's. He's kind of, you know, he realizes this is one of the building blocks of his reputation yeah. as one of the great actors. Uh, so it's a, uh, it just, it holds up really for a movie that is was so of its moment. Uh, it holds up remarkably well. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem um, dated. It seems like a time capsule, which yep. is which is a comp- which is me giving a compliment. It's also, and it's the other thing is that it relies on the intelligence of its audience, even if the audience is not contemporary to the 70s you know like if you're watching this 40 years later you still don't feel like you're being led along or talked down to or having things thrown in your face like you know hey pay attention to this you you it it assumes that you're smart enough to follow it along and it doesn't it also doesn't mock your intelligence if you're if you're not you know getting it and it's a really good lesson in restrained filmmaking to a certain extent you know all the shots matter. All the sound. I, I've become obsessed with the idea of overscoring of films, especially horror movies. But like how how so and 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 sci-fi and, and and action movies where too many times there's too much sound, and allowing allowing those quiet moments makes a film more effective sometimes in my mind. And, um, and I think, I think you see that with this, there's a lot of quiet moments in this film, or a lot of very, very straightforward moments in this film that really, really work. Um, and, and are not oversold. And, but you're right. All everything. I mean, we completely agree on everything here. I mean, everything you said is just, it's, it's essential. If you want to know about the seventies, you want to know about that era, that era of filmmaking with that era of American history, and uh, it is, it's a really tight thriller and it sucks you in. You know, there's not a single explosion in this movie. <laughs> no. <laughs> and you're sucked in and you're like, you know, are they going to get it? And, and, and the ending is satisfying because you know, even if you're not familiar with it, even if, you, if you're one of those people who has no knowledge of Nixon and Watergate going into the film, you know at the end of the movie before that teletype starts going that these two have – they've hit their stride yep. and they're on their way and you're like, 
yeah, you, you are rooting for them in the end. And you're like, yeah, they're, they're going to do something. And then it rolls out and it's a very, very satisfying ending as well, which is, which is really cool. Yep. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. I heard this quick talk about uh, all the president's men. Uh, Rob, can you just uh, tell everybody where they can find you? Uh, all of our shows are on our network site, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. We have a great collection of uh, people and we have a great collection of shows that appeal to have all these different uh, things. We have Oh Hot Moo, which is the where the, the Siskoid and the girls rate the hotness of various members of the Marvel Universe. We have uh, it's, uh, it's Midnight, the podcasting hour, which is all about DC horror. I have my show, Film and Water. We have JLI, which is a shag show. We have a bunch of shows, Supermates. It's just a really fun collection of shows, and you can find them all on the site, firewaterpodcast.com. All right, and um, I uh, I will have some origin story out sometime in I don't remember the, what the next date is. I've written down somewhere, but it's not anywhere near me. So look for that. Uh, look for another episode. I'm planning on at least two more episodes, maybe three before the end of the before the end of the year. Uh, so until then, uh, Rob, thanks again for coming on, and thank you everybody for listening. And take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit. All clips and media are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, so no infringement is intended. Feedback can be sent via email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. For more content, including show notes, media, and essays, be sure to check out the blog, which can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can support all the Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com whenever you shop. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.